Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Voices of Conscience from an Ethical Perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I am the senior pastor at Westminster Presbyterian Church, and I will be moderating today's forum. The forum originates from Westminster Church in beautiful downtown Minneapolis. I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Christine Castle as the first speaker in our fall series of the Westminster Town Hall Forum. Dr. Castle is the chair of the Department of Geriatrics and Adult Development at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York. Dr. Castle is a graduate of the University of Massachusetts and former chief of internal medicine at the University of Chicago. She is the first woman to chair the American Board of Internal Medicine. And in 1999, President Clinton named Dr. Castle an advisor to the National Institute of Health. She is the author of several books, including A Practical Guide to Aging. Christine Castle has earned an international reputation for her ability to focus the medical, ethical, and policy spotlights on the field of aging. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Christine Castle. Thank you, Tim, and thank you everyone for being here. I want to talk to you today about successful aging and about the role of work in successful aging. Now this may not be a, a message that many people, at least initially, are eager to hear. We think of the later years of our lives as a time of a well-deserved reward of leisure and of having a chance to work in the garden and play golf or bridge and uh, spend more time with the family, perhaps. And those things are important aspects of what we're coming to think of as the third age of life. But the dramatic increases in life expectancy that we have witnessed in the past century are truly unprecedented in the history of the human species meaning that we need to think differently about everything we do in our society and in our families, and work is part of that everything that we need to think about. First, let me just put this in the context of the unprecedented reality of how long we can expect to live. In the Bronze Age, the average human life expectancy was about 27 years. Tens of thousands of years later, in 1900, that number had increased to only 45 years. From 1900 to the year 2000, we have almost doubled human life expectancy. So more than in all previous tens of thousands of years of the evolution of the human race, this single century has seen the expectation for most of us that we will live into old age. That is new, that this is a normal expectation for people, that 80% of Americans will live far past their 65th birthday and can plan on it, and their families can plan uh, on multiple generations of uh, families that will live and work and care for one another. Most of the discussions of this topic tend to focus on the downside, tend to focus on chronic illness and disability, on the problems of old age, and at the policy level, on the burdens to society of paying for Social Security and Medicare. 
What I want to talk to you about today is the upside. Um, after all, as I believe it was Woody Allen who said, I'm not particularly fond of aging, but consider the alternative. Um, we need to, to look at the upside because there is one, and more importantly, because we, you and I, can actually influence the positive side of how we age. That's what we call successful aging, and that's what I want to talk with you about today. We know that it is a combination of social factors and medical advances that are enabling people to live longer than they did in the past. And the goal for these extra years should be to live these extra years well. Successful aging is also strongly linked with how active people remain. And that activity is physical, but it is also mental and social. So every dimension of your life that you can remain active, engaged, and involved will actually contribute to your health as you grow older. But not only would it contribute to your health if you stay active and involved, particularly in the workforce, but it would also contribute to the economy and to some of the debates that are now occurring in Washington about extending eligibility for Social Security and the role of health and health care in that process. Let's remember that the reason why the age 65 was picked as retirement age at the time that Medicare kicks in, as the time that at least for the next 10 to 20 years Social Security be, uh, uh, begins for most people, is a totally arbitrary reason that General Bismarck in Germany in the early 19th century was the first uh, uh, nation to offer pensions to their retired military. And he wanted to pick a number that he thought would not, he wouldn't have to pay very much. So he figured 65, not very many people live past 65, so if we make the pension begin at age 65, it won't cost the Prussian army that much money. So that was it, 65. And since that time, Western nations have used this number as the time that we think we should begin to retire and collect benefits, etc. There is no biological, demographic, or other reason for that number. And as we look now at the aging of the population in our country and in most other developed countries, 65 is no longer old. I don't have to tell you that. Um, I specialize in geriatric medicine, which it, in which we care for patients who have the kinds of problems that often come with old age, the average age of our patients is 85. And we have many patients well past the age of 100. So the whole spectrum of what we think of as aging is moving out. So how can you and your own actions influence all of these dimensions of what we're calling successful aging? Successful aging is a matter of three things. Most of us have thought of how we age as being determined by our genes. And there's that old statement that, uh, that it depends on your parents, that you, that's the most important factor in how you age. Recent scientific research has shown that actually that's not true. Only 30% of the determinants of how successful your aging is come from genetic forces and things that you inherit. 
70% is up to you in some important way. The three components are to age successfully is to have a relatively low probability of disease that causes disability. Some of that is genetic, some of it is not, as we'll hear in a moment. Two, a high level of continued mental and physical function. And three, active engagement in life, which of course can take many different forms. The relationship between productivity and health is a complicated one because while active engagement in life activities, including productive work, helps people remain healthy in old age, one of the strongest determinants of being able to work and being able to remain active, either in paid or unpaid activities, is being healthy. So the two obviously are interlinked and work together. Fortunately, medical science is getting better at helping people stay active as they age. There are several levels or paradigms, if you will, of how health and healthcare can help uh, promote successful aging. And let me just briefly touch on uh, those three as well. First, prevention. We all hear a lot about prevention uh, and preventive um, health care, but the first thing one can do in prevention is to take care of oneself. And it's easy to say that you should stay physically active and eat a good diet, um, but it's more important to do it, to figure out some way to do it. Every study that has ever been done has shown that one of the strongest determinants of being healthy as we get older is staying physically active. Now, this doesn't mean you have to be a marathon runner. If you're watching the Olympics, it doesn't mean that you have to engage in these miraculous kinds of heroic sports. It means walk instead of take the elevator if you're going up one flight of stairs. It means walk a few blocks to the store instead of taking the car. It means stay active in the kinds of things that you think to do in your leisure time, to, to go for a walk um, or ride a bicycle or something that just keeps you moving. Moderate exercise makes as much difference to, to healthy aging as intense uh, or competitive physical exercise. But physical activity doesn't just help your cardiovascular health. That's where we hear the most about it. it's good for your heart, it's good to keep your blood pressure down, and it uh, helps keep your uh, circulation going. It's also very important for bone strength, and healthy bones are actually, in some ways, more important than a healthy heart, especially for women as we age, because as, as women get more osteoporosis than men, um, although it can happen to both women and men, the risks of hip fracture and fracture of the vertebral spine are enormous, and these can be very painful and very disabling disorders and life-threatening, as a matter of fact. The heart, the bones, but also mental health, that people are less likely to have memory loss and even can postpone some of the debilitating effects of Alzheimer's disease if they remain both physically and mentally active. The old pundit who said, use it or lose it, was right. And that has to do with mental activity as well as physical activity. And when I mean mental activity, 
I don't mean sitting passively in front of a television set. Because it turns out that passive mental activity isn't as good for your brain as active problem-solving mental activity. So crossword puzzles, actually playing bridge is a good one. Things that force you learning a new language, going back to school, which is something that I encourage all of my uh, retired patients to do. But also mood and sleep. Depression is a very common problem as people get older. Physical activity and mental activity are correlated with much lower levels of depression as people get older. Much better sleep patterns, much fewer complaints of insomnia. So all of these things will benefit um, from even a moderate amount of physical activity. But there's also secondary prevention. So that, that's one very important part of primary prevention. But secondary prevention is as important, and that means if you have disease, finding it early when it still may be curable and treatable. So this means regular checkups to make sure that your blood pressure is checked, that your blood sugar is checked. For women, regular mammograms and regular sigmoidoscopy or colonoscopy to check for colon cancer. Those are unpleasant tests. I don't want to minimize the fact that they are, but colon cancer is the third cause of death from cancer in our nation and is eminently curable if it is found early. So those kinds of simple health-promoting measures that involve your interaction with the healthcare system um, are very important as well. But you know, let's not be Pollyannish about it. It also happens that as we get older, we're at greater risk for chronic diseases, some of which are not related to, um, to health practices, at least as far as we know. Things, for example, like osteoarthritis, which is one of the most common problems of people as they age and can be very um, disabling. So we want to not only prevent disease, but we also want to treat it appropriately when it occurs. And this is the field that I am um, uh, very committed to and very involved in, which is helping our health professionals, particularly physicians, learn more about the aging process, about geriatric medicine, and how to focus on putting function first as we diagnose and treat uh, disorders which have to do, um, which are linked with old age. As I said, arthritis, hearing and visual problems, for example, diabetes, hypertension, and others. The AARP reports that about 65% of people 65 and older have two or more chronic diseases. But guess what? Most of them function normally, are completely independent. So having chronic diseases doesn't mean that you're disabled. And that's the important link where medical care can make a big difference. People with chronic conditions can also age successfully if they get the medical care they need. So we need better training of our health providers about aging and about how to treat these disorders. And we need more access to what works in medical care. Um, I often point out to my friends who work in the uh, uh, field of medical demography, they go around and do surveys about how healthy people are and there was a recent one that showed that the level of disability in old age was declining. Um, and everybody thought that was wonderful, that the number of 85-year-olds who were reasonably independent and healthy seems to be increasing. 
So that message in Washington, people it gets to Washington, people say, oh, well, we can decrease Medicare costs this way. And I, I go to Washington, I point out the reason why those 85-year-old people answer the door and say, I'm doing fine, thank you, is because they've had cataract operations, bypass surgery, hip and knee replacements. They're getting, if they're women, they're getting hormone replacements and having mammograms and they're having their hypertension treated. And they're just fine, thank you. But they're just fine, thanks to Medicare. And that we need not to cut Medicare, but actually to make it better and um, improve it to help people have access to these miracles of modern medicine. The most important of these, of course, and I'm not going to dwell on this today, but is medication, prescription medications, which Medicare still does not cover for most people in the United States. And as you know, there's a big political debate going on right now about this. I certainly am one of the people that hopes that we resolve this debate in, the fa in favor of some kind of prescription drug benefit for Medicare because there are more and more fabulously helpful, good medications out there that are going to make aging better for all of us and for our families. And if people can't afford to, to buy these medications, they're not going to be able to get the benefits uh, that are possible for them. Let me just uh, uh, give you an example of, of what I mean by that, that um, we now have really effective medications to treat the pain of osteoarthritis. And increasingly, I think we're going to see advances to make osteoarthritis not just a surgical disease, but also be able to treat it very effectively with medications. If that pain in the joints is treated effectively, then those people will be able to exercise, will be able to stay active, will be able to sleep better, and all of the other things that flow from that kind of activity. So you can see from treating one simple problem, you can get a lot of important um, health benefits. And uh, we're going to need to make that possible for people. Now, the third paradigm is the science fiction part. But it isn't fiction. It's real science. And that is the miraculous uh, potential right on the horizon for science coming from the new ge genetics research, being able to target treatment to the people who are most susceptible to certain diseases, the new stem cell research where we may see organ transplantation become much more widely available, not only to treat kidney failure and heart failure, but also to treat perhaps Parkinson's disease and even maybe Alzheimer's disease, um, and not be limited by the limits of donor organs that we're seeing now. We're seeing new and artificial tissues being made that might replace the cartilage in our joints so that we don't need metal replacements for hip and knee replacements. All kinds of dramatic new genetic technologies that will make visual and hearing deficits hopefully a thing of the past. So these, these exciting advances are going to need continued investment in medical science, which fortunately our country really has been willing and continues uh, to do uh, probably more than any other country in the world with our support of NIH and our biomedical research enterprise. But again, when those things become available to you and me, are we going to be able to afford them? And that's what means that Medicare has to be remain strong, and if anything, be strengthened in the future if it's going to be there for all of us and to keep us as active as we can be.
So let me then, with that sort of paradigm, going from the simple things like walking up a flight of stairs to these dramatic new scientific advances, all of it is going to make it possible for us to have our older years um, be more and more uh, active. And I think if we make that investment, we can keep older people in the workforce longer. Um, and that will help Social Security. And it will also reflect a more positive attitude about aging within our society. I think that this uh, concern we have about older people being a burden on society is one of the most negative things for families and for our social policy that I can imagine when we're looking at a future where one out of five or perhaps even one out of four in some cities people will be over the age of 60 or 65. Those people cannot be marginalized and should not be marginalized. They have important contributions to make uh, to society. But if we're going to make this work, if we're going to make keeping working work, then corporate and America and the business sector has to also change because there is, it probably remains one of the most ageist, uh, that is to say negative about older age workers than any of the sectors in our society, and unnecessarily so. Now, one of the reasons is because of the health insurance problem, and I think that's why it's so important that Medicare play an important role in this. But also, it's like anything else. We have to think more flexibly about how we structure work and how we structure our activities. We need to make um, the workplace friendlier to older workers by offering different options for working arrangements, offering transportation arrangements perhaps, telecommuting, um, and uh, offering intergenerational approaches to uh, working teams that develop um, any kinds of services in our largely service um, uh, economy. I've been speaking recently to a number of corporate leaders and uh, human resource professionals who are wary about the older worker because they, like the rest of our society, have this youth-oriented idea. We want to get young, dynamic people. But actually, if you look out there at who are the dynamic people, they are not only the young. So this is a dramatic change that needs to occur in all of our um, uh, culture. And I think we will see that occurring if we um, start to think differently about our own successful aging. But it, it's going to take a partnership of those of us who are getting older ourselves with the, the work community and the rest of our community that builds the productive environment in which our society engages. We need to stop thinking about 60 or 65 as time to retire and start to think of it as if, we, if you're tired of what we're doing, do something else. A career, after all, is not a life sentence. You can have more than one career in your life. I urge people, and it's actually good for your brain to learn some new skills as you get older. And we ought to have colleges and community centers that help people learn new skills, especially in this computer age. Learning those kinds of skills is quite possible and often essential to staying active um, and to self-esteem as well as, I might add, interacting with your grandchildren by email. So in conclusion, let me just say that we have much to celebrate in our society with the promise of, a, of modern um, 
science and the health that we can all expect. But we also have people who are susceptible and suffer from serious disabling chronic diseases as they age. And that means that we have to be prepared to, as families to care for older people because that's where most of the care occurs. So the workplace is going to have to take that into account. The same way some enlightened workplaces do about childcare, we need to think about elder care as an important component of keeping us all active um, as, we, uh, as we age. And in these ways, we can not only help ourselves and help our society, but we can maintain our own high levels of emotional and intellectual functioning for as long as I think we'd like to. So when we plan our retirement, we should plan to keep active and keep working. We can plan volunteer activities as well as paid activities, but we should also make sure that we don't exclude families and the multi-generational challenges that all of us face in that process. In this way, we can work together to fulfill the real promise of increased longevity. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Christine Castle. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, moderator of today's forum. Today's guest is Dr. Christine Castle, who has just spoken on the topic, Successful Aging. While the ushers collect questions from our audience here at Westminster, I would like again to thank the McKnight and Star Tribune Foundations for their sponsorship of today's forum. Dr. Castle, if you would return to the pulpit, we will begin the questions. What is the major difference in how men and women age? Very good question. There's several dimensions of that difference. One is biological. There continues to be this dramatic survival advantage that women have over men, roughly between six to eight years in most developed countries. Um, and because of that, for example, the dramatic increase in the numbers of people who survive past the age of 100 is dominated largely by women. I recently talked to the uh, Commissioner of Social Security who told me that they write checks uh, every month to 65,000 Americans who are over the age of 100 and that 5,000 of those are men. So there is an enormous survival advantage um, that women have. It used to be thought that this would be balanced out once women started working more and had the same stresses that men have, but it, that has turned out not to make that much difference. Scientists still don't understand this survival advantage, and it is a great mystery and a very important one. I think we ought to make aging into an equal opportunity adventure and, um, and find the reasons why. The ob one of the obvious uh, suggestions has been estrogen, of course, that being one of the dominant uh, hormonal differences between uh, men and women. And of course, I'm sure many of you are aware of some of the recent research suggesting that uh, estrogen, continued estrogen replacement in women after menopause also seems to prevent Alzheimer's disease or at least uh, make it less likely 
um, that Alzheimer's disease occurs. Some of the data on heart disease is more controversial, and we don't really don't understand the real biological um, differences there. So, but there are some, and we are continuing to study them. But it's not just in the biological realm that there are differences uh, between men and women. It's also in the social realm. And here, I think my message about remaining active and engaged in your community and your in your society is a very important one. Men are much more likely than women to have serious problems and health declines after the death of a spouse. Women seem to handle that really predictable but often very difficult life stress much better. And most of the research suggests that the reason is that they have informal net support networks, friends, community environments, neighbors who, who they've learned uh, to rely on and to share their thoughts with over the years. And men are less likely to do that and tend to depend more on the spouse. So those kinds of uh, uh, patterns are things that I think we can change and that um, community activities, particularly um, for older men, are beginning to uh, be organized in communities around the country and may help with some of those um, phenomena as well. Now a question really that follows uh, nicely on that one. Science can now prolong life well into the 90s and possibly 100s for those 65,000 plus that's doing it. Will the quality of life continue? Well, this is, um, this is really what we all hope will happen. Data, the scientific data studying populations and how they age suggests that people are healthier as, as we age. So it's already happening that quality of life is increasing as we age, but it's not happening enough. And part of my message is that we, are, we have the knowledge to improve what we're already doing um, to increase the quality of life as we age, and more of that knowledge is right on the horizon. I'm surprised to hear a bright traditional doctor make no mention of alternative health modalities, acupuncture, meditation, visualization, homeopathy, but still to emphasize medications. Drugs help, but don't you think they are overused and can be destructive? Yes, yes, and yes. Um, I'm glad you mentioned uh, the destructive aspect of drugs because there is a phenomenon in geriatric medicine called polypharmacy that is also the downside of all these wonder drugs that I'm trying to get Medicare to pay for, um, is that older people who are taking numerous medications often can suffer from the adverse effects of those medications. They may need different doses, for example, which is why we need doctors who are better trained to understand these um, medical facts. But also, if you take numerous different medications, they can interact with each other and have very negative effects. So the doctor that you're seeing needs to know the whole story. You need to have someone who sees the big picture rather than numerous specialists who may not know what the other one's doing. And you definitely should not be borrowing your neighbor's medication, which is a phenomenon that we see very often. And understandably, particularly when one person has some insurance and can help pay for it and the other person doesn't. And this is an underground phenomenon that goes on, I think, far more commonly than we realize. 
So medication can be dangerous and isn't just a, uh, an unalloyed uh, benefit. And um, I think uh, whenever possible, needs to be used um, sparingly and thoughtfully. So that's very important. But it can work wonders, and that's part of the message that I want to give. Alternative and complementary treatments are very interesting. Many of them are already being proven to have significant or promising effects in, some, in treating some of these disorders. And I am a great supporter of the need to do more research in these areas. Some alternative uh, techniques can actually um, uh, substitute for medications which might have more side effects. One good example I'll give you is that we uh, use massage therapy for some of the musculoskeletal problems that some of our older patients have. And if you can actually treat a specific uh, complaint or problem that the person has with massage therapy, then you don't need to give them systemic medications, which may have all kinds of side effects on the stomach and the kidneys and other uh, parts of the body, um, because you were only trying to treat the shoulder, for example. So there certainly is a lot of promise to be used, uh, to be found in these methods. But we need to be cautious. We need to make sure that we know what we're doing. We need to make sure that we're not taking things that aren't uh, tested in some way. One of the concerns I have about herbal medications, for example, that are sold in health food stores is that they are not regulated by the FDA. You have really no way of knowing what's in those tablets or those pills when you take them. And I would rather see all of it actually be much more um, uh, highly organized and, and uh, supervised so that we could assure people that if you're taking St. John's wort, that that's what you're actually getting, for example. So that's one of the problems in this current world where alternative medications or herbal uh, medications aren't regulated by the same mechanisms that we have um, for other kinds of medications. But it certainly uh, is, but, but the fact that people are looking to these uh, uh, remedies suggests to me that people do seek ways of, of relieving their suffering and also improving their function as they age. One last point about that, um, Dr. Dean Ornish, who has shown dramatic improvements in people's um, cardiac, people with coronary artery disease, reducing the level of disease in their coronary arteries and preventing the need to have bypass surgery simply by diet and exercise. Well, you can say now simply by diet and exercise, but the Ornish diet is reducing your fat intake to 10%, which is almost unheard of for most Americans and means a lot of tofu, let me tell you. Um, but these people do it, and they actually see regression of uh, uh, cholesterol plaques in their coronary arteries. But how do they do it? They do it by meditation. They have a whole program where they use some of these other uh, methods to try to deal with stress, to try to overcome um, uh, cravings for food they're not supposed to have, and to try to get themselves to stay active and um, uh, uh, provide support for one another in this program. So, it, so it's not just the diet or the medication. I think it's also many of these other things that we can do for ourselves um, that can contribute to our health. Several questions about longevity. One specifically asking what are the factors that account for 
the uh, high longevity of people who live in Minnesota, and one that perhaps is related to that uh, about uh, different patterns of longevity in various racial ethnic groups, say Swedes and Norwegians and Scandinavians. Are there patterns that are uh, uh, measurable in terms of longevity of racial ethnic groups? There, there are indeed, and I have to, in full, the spirit of full disclosure, say that I was born in Minneapolis, so I can claim some of those good genes. Um, uh, and that um, it may just be because everyone here is above average. I mean, I certainly believe that. <laughs> but it turns out, guess what, that Scandinavians in Scandinavia live longer too, with the um, exception of Finnish people, which is a sort of a different uh, genetic background and different kinds of problems. But in, in Sweden, for example, has always been neck and neck with Japan as having the longest uh, lived populations in the world. And uh, this, I think, it, and it's interesting because Japan and Sweden are such different cultures that, that and yet they both have dramatically um, long life expectancies and have had that, that edge um, for a long time. They have very different healthcare systems, so it doesn't have to do with that. And it probably is in some way a combination of uh, genetic uh, and behavioral factors that how, how people um, live, what they, uh, how their families interact, perhaps even how they incorporate aging into their society that might uh, make it more likely uh, that they would live longer. So, that's another one of these mysteries, like the disparity between men and women, and one that deserves a great deal more study. But in the meantime, it strikes me that it means that uh, people in um, Minnesota ought to celebrate that advantage and perhaps ought to lead the way in the nation at, tr at working at some of these kinds of social changes that I suggest to really take advantage of successful aging. Most of my friends want to retire younger, in their mid-50s, not older. How do you reconcile, reconcile this with your idea that people should work longer? Now, that's a very good question, and I'm, I'm very aware that um, working isn't always fun, and that for many people the idea of retirement is what keeps them going and makes it uh, is the incentive to keep showing up at work every day. We need, and, and that's why I mentioned the possibility of changing, changing activities. Um, whether it's gainful employment, whether paid work or volunteer work doesn't matter so much. Although I would say that there is some uh, research suggesting that people who get paid for what they do have a higher benefit of self-esteem and feeling of responsibility about it. Now, that's a just, sort of an average observation of some socio sociological studies, each one of us is an individual and many people I know who are engaged in volunteer work take it very seriously, are very responsible and very ha have very high levels of self-esteem. So it certainly um, doesn't mean that you have to be paid in order for it to be valuable. But I do think that, that the nation needs older people to remain in the productive economy and that it's up to us as a society to figure out ways of making work more attractive. So many, if, if people like what they do, then I would urge them to keep doing it. If they don't like what they do, then they probably aren't going to have those extra benefits from continuing to work anyway, um, which, which have to do with these intangible 
feelings of mastery and self-esteem and, and feeling that you have a worthwhile role in society. So we need to make those changes in the workplace to allow people to try out different approaches, to learn new skills, and to enter new environments where they might find themselves actually enjoying going to work in the morning. Following up on that question and your response, do you have some concrete specific suggestions to share with corporate human resource professionals with respect to hiring and retaining senior workers? I do indeed. I think it's um, uh, some of the things, the first thing is to overcome uh, your reaction to gray hair. <laughs> um, that, that I cannot tell you how many uh, corporate discussions that I've sat in, and even in my own in environment in academic medicine, in the medical school and hospital environment, whenever we're thinking of hiring a new person for some position, the, somebody always says we want somebody young and energetic and creative and dynamic, and those words always go together. So this stereotype that only young people can be all of those things. And yet, when I talk to HR professionals in the field, particularly in this world where everything is becoming more and more electronic, where people, where what matters is not so much a technical skill anymore, but the hardest kind of people that they have, that for them to find, are people who have judgment, maturity, and the ability to make decisions. Those three factors. And to my mind, those are not things that automatically come with youth. Um, as a matter of fact, when you think about it, those are things that come with some years of experience um, in the workforce. And when you sit these folks down and talk to them about what do you really need for your employee base, they will say, we don't need somebody who really understands our business. We need somebody who knows how to communicate with people. And they can learn the content of the work. It's the communication skills that are the most important. So I think increasingly, um, uh, and particularly in this full employment economy that we're blessed with right now, that human uh, resources professionals are beginning to ask themselves, maybe we're looking for a different, the wrong kind of profile, or at least we ought to expand what our profile is. But the psychological and attitudinal stereotypes and the roots of ageism in our society go very deep, and we should not underestimate the importance of that. And I think that those are things that need to be talked about openly in schools and community forums and churches and understood at, at, for what they are, which is incorrect stereotypes. Several questions about uh, memory loss and dementia. What should we watch for in a senior's memory loss? How do we sort out normal memory loss from abnormal memory loss? When does memory loss become dementia? How can we slow dementia's progress? Well, there's two aspects to this phenomenon of memory loss with aging. Um, first, to say that Alzheimer's disease and the related diseases that cause dementia as, as we get older are devastating illnesses. And anyone who has dealt with a family member or a friend who has suffered from this knows the tragedy of it. I think, it's, it's my view, that if we could find a way to treat, prevent, or even cure um, that single disease, that we would do more towards improving people's attitudes about aging in this society than anything else. I think it's the stereotype of the demented older person 
that is what we all fear the most about aging and unfortunately then extends to other aspects of aging. So it's a very important disease that we must figure out ways to treat and to conquer. But until we do, we must also figure out ways to take advantage of what we know about the neurobiology of aging and how the brain ages to make sure that we make it possible for people who have early Alzheimer's disease, for example, to function as effectively as possible for as long as they can. We now, for example, in New York have support groups of older people with Alzheimer's disease who are very high-functioning older people and who can keep their memory going, share with each other tricks and techniques that they use to help them back up their memory so that they can still live by themselves and function as long as they can. So in, instead of having a taboo about it, not wanting to talk about it, being ashamed of it, we should think of it as any other sort of disease and interact with those people and, and talk with them. One of the worst things doctors can do, for example, as soon as an older person has a label of Alzheimer's disease, they stop talking to the patient, they start talking to the family member who brings them to the doctor. Even though this person may be perfectly able to answer the questions themselves, and with a little prompting or sometimes even not with a little prompting, they immediately become infantilized. So we very much need to change our attitudes about that particular disease. But there also is this phenomenon of memory decline with normal aging that is not Alzheimer's disease and, and is under very intense study right now. There's a laboratory in my department that is doing a lot of very interesting work on normal aging loss. and Finding, uh, finding that memory can be in, enhanced in humans and in animals in different ways. We have a memory clinic uh, at Mount Sinai where, we, where people come in who are concerned that they're beginning to uh, forget names or um, forget where they put their keys, which is the most common one. And there are actually exercises that you can do with your memory which actually help improve it. Now there's also age-related biochemical changes in the part of the brain called the hippocampus that's responsible for memory that, that are sort of inevitable with age. They even seem to occur in primates, in a aging monkeys, who I guess also forget where they put their keys. Um, <laughs> but the good news that these animal studies have shown us is that um, the cells are not dead. This old myth that brain cells die as you age and you can never get them back turns out not to be true. The cells just become sort of dormant and dysfunctional. And scientists are now learning how to replace those chemicals that can bring the cells back and get them to respond. And so there's some real promise, and I would say within the next five to 10 years, we're going to actually see medications that are gonna make it possible for us to improve our memory. There are already studies about things called cognitive enhancers, which are going to lead to lots of interesting ethical problems if you think about it, because for example, in the Olympics, we don't allow people to use drugs that enhance their physical performance. We consider that unethical. We want them to compete based on their natural talents. Well, what if we have cognitive enhancers that help us think better, help our brains work better? Wouldn't we want, even in Minnesota, where we're all above average, wouldn't we want our kids to have that advantage when they're studying for college or when they're trying to get into law school or medical school? 
Would there be rules against using these kinds of drugs that enhance our memories? We're going to actually be faced with some very interesting ethical problems because of that promise. So the, the news is much as with what I said earlier, right now, exercise your memory. That's the best thing that we can do. Um, and don't uh, use, uh, and always question medications, getting back to that fact, that often medications can have the side effect of making people a little muddled or confused. And so if you find a new onset of this kind of problem in an older person, the first thing to look at is what medications they're on. And sometimes just stopping some of the medications can bring back uh, a lot of that function. What is being done in medical schools to train young doctors about death? Is there less emphasis on viewing death as a medical failure and more acceptance of it as a natural part of life? There is beginning to be, and I think that that should be the topic for an entire separate uh, uh, program for you. But I would just say that all of this good news about successful aging has not made us immortal. We must remember this. And especially modern medicine must remember this. There's a vibrant new uh, group of uh, uh, physicians and nurses who are reinventing a field called palliative care medicine, which is trying to reclaim the role of medicine in comfort and dignity for people at the end of life. And I have great hope that they're going to be very successful at getting at our medical education and our how our hospitals and uh, uh, healthcare institutions and nursing homes are structured so that we have a much more um, uh, uh, enlightened and caring approach to people at the end of life. Because to not provide those kinds of services is first of all a misuse of medicine, and second, it's a missed opportunity for those of, of us in the healthcare field who have the privilege to care for people at the most profound moments in life, and birth and death are two of those. That concludes our question and answer period. Thank you, Dr. Castle. The next Westminster Town Hall Forum will be held Thursday, October 5th. Our speaker will be Dr. Philip Landrigan, Director of the Center for Children's Health and the Environment and co-author of Raising Children Toxic-Free. The pre-forum concert will begin at 11 a.m. on Thursday, October 5th. Thank you for joining us today, and thank you again, Dr. Castle.